0: If you have a child with type one diabetes, whether they were diagnosed five days ago or five years ago, you continue to have questions. These are the questions about the emotional side of living with diabetes, the questions about how to parent diabetes. I'm Joanne Robb, a psychotherapist and fellow T1D mom, and I've been parenting diabetes for almost 15 years. In this podcast, I'm here to answer your questions about the emotional and relational challenges that come with being a caregiver for a child with type one diabetes. Before we dive in, I have to remind you that I'm not a doctor and nothing that I offer here should be considered medical advice. If you want to make any changes to the way you or your child is managing their type 1, please be sure to check in with your doctor or medical team. Let's get started.
1: Hi, everyone. We had an episode a few months ago on drugs and alcohol use with T1D. And Dr. Justin Altshuler had come on to answer the questions of a parent was concerned about her teenage son and his alcohol use. Since then, I've gotten a series of other questions from other listeners about drug and alcohol use, and I have Dr. Justin back here to answer some of those questions. Welcome back, Justin. Thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having Um, me. Always a pleasure.
1: I wanted to start by reading this question. So this listener wrote in and said, I really enjoyed listening to the podcast episode about alcohol use with type 1. I actually listened to it with my 15-year-old type 1 daughter, and she had a really good follow-up question. She wanted to know what you do if you want to go out dancing while you're drinking. She's wondering how you can possibly keep your numbers up high enough in that situation. By the way, I think it's pretty cute she's thinking it through. I know she's not drinking yet, and she doesn't go out like that, but I'm glad she's planning ahead. I'm going to turn that over to you.
2: Great question. So, um, you know, for your listeners, if you go back and listen to that episode, if I remember remember, right. We talked a lot about different strategies for maintaining blood sugars when people are drinking and sort of the risks that are inherent in that. And why, and we talked a bit, if I remember right about the physiology about, and why, um, why people are, why people with type one are at higher risk for lows while they are drinking. And, you know, when you add, any kind of exercise and dancing is certainly exercise into that mix, it's all of that just amplified. Mm-hmm. So the liver's ability to maintain blood sugars is impaired because of the alcohol. And at the same time, there's an increased demand from the body for glucose to support all the boogie, right? So the, the fundamental principles are really kind of the same. And I think it's worth going back and sort of listening to that, that episode. If you have questions, the, the implementation is just sort of like more so, right. So you're going to need, you know, less insulin throughout the course of the night, and you are going to need more carbohydrates while you're dancing. Um, And, you know, as, as unaware as people can be when they're drinking about blood sugars, if you add in you know, an activity that you're really focused on, like dancing, um, odds are people are not gonna be more in tune with their blood sugars when they're doing that, they're gonna be less in tune. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that the fundamental gist of, of what we talked about last time still really kind of applies, it's just a matter of degree. Um, and then I think that the second thing is that when we talked about this last time, we also talked about how there's really a delayed effect from, uh, from alcohol, right? So the alcohol and alcohol dehydrogenase and that inhibiting the, the liver, uh, spilling glucose and maintaining blood sugar persists for a long time. And it persists you know, usually after people have gone to bed. Well, if you think about exercise in a similar context, um, you know, most most kids or families have had experiences where they, you know, maybe they maintain fine during the soccer practice, and then 30, 60, 90 minutes after is when the crash comes from the exercise. And that's really no different here either. So so you have both the sort of acute period where you're you're working to try and maintain blood sugars in the presence of exercise and alcohol. And then you also have the the later period where you stop dancing. Um, Oftentimes people have a blood sugar crash, you know, even absent alcohol but the presence of alcohol makes the likelihood of that blood sugar crash that much higher. And so it's another area where we think about, look, you really want to think about carving up. Um, Most kids are on an automated insulin system. So you want to think about setting higher targets. This is not the time to be worrying about, you know, high blood sugars. This is the time to be worrying about low blood sugars. And if you're running 200, 250, like that's okay. Um, And and I think really sort of, you know, over the short-term prioritizing safety and prioritizing not going low rather than really working or thinking about optimal glycemic management or making sure that you're tightly in range.
1: So I have some follow-up thoughts and questions on that. One thing you're saying is like carving up. So I was thinking based on our last episode that we did together, Justin, is that you'd need to carve up sort of at the beginning of the night as you're putting alcohol into your system. It's sounding like you maybe need two carb-ups though, especially if there's exercise. One sort of at the the second one at the end of the night. So you've just gone dancing, you've had alcohol, and now's the time to eat like a big bowl of ice cream or something.
2: Yes. In fact, I would I would actually push it even more extreme. So I think you're probably also going to be wanna be eating while you're dancing.
1: Um okay and,
2: and I, I would say that you know dancing, you know, if we think if I think about the experience at camp, like kids go low all the time and they're not drinking. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So dancing dancing is, you know, often pretty intense exercise. And so I think it's thinking about carving up beforehand, but it's also thinking about you know looking at blood sugars periodically while you are doing that and continuing to take additional carbs during the dancing. And then it's after and making sure that there's a lot of carbs on board to, to sort of support blood sugars, you know, as you think about going to bed and going to sleep. And it's pulling back insulin throughout that time.
0: We're going to take a quick break and be back with more answers. One of the hardest things about diabetes is the food. Your kid has to eat, but there's so many foods that send them high or are tricky to dose for. And at the same time, you don't want to restrict their food choices. You want them to be able to feel like every other kid. To help you navigate the many challenges of food and eating with type 1, I've created the Sweet Talk Snack Course, a free mini course that gives you six bite-sized lessons to support your T1D kid in having a healthy relationship with food and eating. Sign up for it at diabetesweettalk.com.
1: So that was my second question is about pulling back insulin, because we all know that you can only pull back so far before you get yourself into trouble. So how far back? I don't think we talked about this last time. How far back would you pull? Like what yeah, so state? Is there a way to know that? Is there a guideline? <laughs> it's,
2: so it's a great question. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things where that's an area that's that's highly specific and tailored, and it's probably a really good conversation to have with the doctor that helps you manage your diabetes or your kid's diabetes. Um, I think that the, that most people feel that a fifty percent reduction is not going to is is very unlikely to really precipitate DKA, and so I think. I think you can be very comfortable with a 50% reduction. Mm-hmm. How much further you go than that and you do 60, 70, I think that is really a gray area. And different, you know, different docs are going to have different perspectives on where you sort of draw that line and for what time and what the circumstances are. Um, I think the other thing that I would really just put in here um, in the context of. Of pulling back insulin is I would recommend really strongly that you do not suspend or disconnect a pump. Um, the the number of the, the likelihood of, of DKA just goes through the roof. And the likelihood that it's a pretty significant DKA because it's not caught for 14 or 16 hours is really high. And so I, I would really say that like that suspending is not a good strategy. And it's something that comes up often, people often ask about.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense to me. Actually, I have a weird follow up question on this, which is that sometimes with alcohol, if someone drinks a lot, they can have alcohol poisoning, and there's sometimes vomiting. Vomiting to me sends off all kinds of red alarm bells around diabetes management, right? Yep. In part because of DKA, so um, or you know, or ketone development. So I, I'm wondering about that constellation too.
2: Yep. So I mean, you know, we we I, there's a hour to hour and a half lecture that I give on this, and and vomiting is a big part of it, right? So I don't think we touched on this the last time, but but one of the you know one of the things that too much alcohol can do is vomiting, and there there are a whole host of problems that come with that, right? So one problem is if you just spent a bunch of time ingesting carbs to prevent yourself from going low and now you vomited all those carbs up. Um, now they're not there to support blood sugar. Um, another issue, right, is in the presence of low blood sugars. If people are too nauseated to be able to maintain food or drink, right. And they throw everything up. How do you get blood sugars up? Because remember glucagon is not going to work very well. And so this is the, the vomiting aspect of Drinking with type one is another place where there are really sort of specific and significant risks that go along with alcohol and type one. Mm-hmm. And so you're right; like it is, it is a risk, and it's and it's a it can be a very significant risk, and it can be tough to manage. And you know, depending on the situation, I mean, it might be one of those things that has to be managed in a you know in a hospital setting because it's mm-hmm. not it's just not feasible to do it at home. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what it's leading me to is like, at what point do you need intervention? I mean, this feels so important for a 18 to 25 year old to know when they need to like say, okay, now I need help or tell their wingman. We talked about yeah. that in the last time, like, yeah. you know, call 911 at this point.
2: Right. So, I mean, again, I think that these scenarios are often really fluid and decision making, like we talked about last time, is often not the best because people are drunk. Right. And so I think that the first the first thing that I would really say is that, you know, it's better to call than not like it is. This is one of those scenarios where if you overreact and you end up in the emergency department for a few hours and you kind of didn't need it. Um, that's a bummer that stinks. Like, <laughs> I mean, of course we don't want that. Um, but that's probably better than the alternative. Um, I think, you know, talking about really, when do you, when do you need to go in sort of what's the bright line and, and that's really when you can't support blood sugars despite trying, right? So you, you know, blood sugar has been, is, is at 70, it's been at 70 for 45 minutes. you drank juice. It's not working or you're throwing it up. Okay, well then, what the only alternative, the only way that you have to get it up is to go in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's something that's sort of a, a pretty clear line. Um, I think the other times where you get really concerned, right, is that you're taking a bunch of carbs. It's not going, it's not coming up, and then you're thinking about going to bed, and so there's not going to be the ability to monitor and sustain. That monitoring and treatment ongoing because you're too tired or you're passed out because you're drunk or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone can't be keeping an eye on that and you're concerned that that blood sugars aren't being supported, um, then you need help keeping them supported. And that's, you know, that's a that's a pretty reasonable time
1: to go in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. Am I missing anything that we should be asking about drinking and dancing?
2: Diabetes management happens in these spaces, right? Diabetes management happens in the like weird situations. It happens in real life. And that's kind of what, that's where we need to be working because it's not, it doesn't happen in a lab. It doesn't happen in isolation. And Mm -hmm. this is exactly the kinds of questions that, um, that I think we need to be answering. And I'm also really, I mean, I'm, I think it's awesome that, that the, that you, the listener that wrote in was like 15. was like trying to really think that out. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's great. Like to me, that's, that is great. And, um, and that kind of like forethought and thoughtfulness, I think is just, I just, I love it. I think it's great. Mm-hmm.
1: I like that perspective. One of the things there's a an educator named Michael Riera, who wrote a book called Staying Connected to Your Teen. And I heard him speak once, and he was talking about talking to a group of kids about what they would do if someone just handed them the glass of beer, the cup of mm-hmm. beer at the party. Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them say, well, I don't want it. And he said, well, what would you say? And so he did this exercise where they yeah. all placed their hand And they wrote in each finger a different thing they might say, one of them being completely absurd, like my head will blow off if I drink beer, right? And then they posted them all around the room so they could all see what other peers might say. And I think that that's really powerful because the kids might have an intention of doing something that they don't know how to follow through on because they haven't thought about it. So I think you're talking about something really important. Yeah. I mean, I think the other
2: thing, like particularly for the parents that are listening should remember, right, is adolescents are really concrete. So, you know, as adults, we, we think sort of, we think in abstracts a lot, but but when you're talking about adolescents, it's really helpful to think, okay, not, I would pull back on insulin, but I'm going to set a temp basal at 50%, or I'm going to set, you know, exercise mode for 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 10 hours or i'm going to make sure that i have 60 grams of carbohydrate or whatever it is um because it really does help that adolescent brain to have a very concrete plan in place um so that in the moment they're not trying to figure it out because that that is i mean it speaks to the point that you made about like different ways of responding like like doing that exercise beforehand and thinking through that scenario beforehand i think really equips our teenagers to handle these situations better.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, the tricky thing about that is that um, I think this can be a touchy place for parents and kids to have a conversation, right? Because kids are often trying to hide the behaviors from their parents, and parents sometimes, sadly, are putting their heads in the sand not wanting to see that their child is potentially engaged in the behavior, or yeah. if they see it, they have a big reaction that causes the child to back up even further.
2: Yes, I think that's right, and I, I mean, I think knowing sort of you, I'm sure that that's something that you talk about a lot on the podcast about how to kind of how to navigate that. I mean, but I think that the other thing that that comes up for me in that context is, you know, as parents, we want to do everything for our kids, but the other reality is we can't do everything for our kids. And so, I think it's, an, it's a scenario where it also becomes really helpful to have other trusted adults in your child's life because, you know, as a parent, you can say the perfect thing in the perfect way. And because it's coming from you as the parent, it's going to be poorly received. Um, whereas, if the same message comes from somebody else, you know, it's often a lot easier for teenagers in particular to pick that up and to hear it. And so, I, I think thinking about who else can be the messenger for this kind of messaging um, is a really helpful, is a really helpful.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think one thing that's important about the way you're phrasing it is that parents shouldn't take it personally, that their children aren't <laughs> listening to them you're <laughs> laughing, so true. but parents do. I mean, it's hard, right? We love our children. We work so hard to, you know, take good care. And we know, we know, the right thing to tell them, but they aren't listening, it's sometimes hard to not take it personally. So I think you're talking about something important, like getting community, getting more people involved, sending your kids to camp because at camp, they're gonna talk about this stuff at team camp, for example, um, so that there's more exposure than just you, the parent. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Any last thoughts? Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm. I
2: I'm really glad that we're having these conversations. I think, um, you know, it's something that parents worry about, and they worry about it. I mean, it, it is an area of, of true risk, right? Um, and and I think the more you know, both both the, our teenagers and our parents sort of the more information they have about it, the, the more tools they have for trying to navigate this, the better off everyone's going to be. So, thanks for thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it.
1: Thank you for being here. Thanks, Justin.
0: Thanks again for listening today. If you want answers to your questions about parenting a kid with type one, I'd like to invite you to join our live recording sessions so you can ask your questions in person. Not only will you get the support you need and deserve, but through the podcast, you'll be helping other T1D parents to know that they're not alone with the challenges they're facing. To join one of my live recording sessions, simply go to www.diabetessweettalk.com and click the banner at the top of the page to register. Again, go to www.diabetessweettalk.com and click the banner at the top of the page to register.